this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering four conversations from episode 31, our kickoff of a month-long review of the changing landscape we all saw at Diesel Congress 2023 and the American Diabetes Association Scientific Sessions, my one-to-one conversations with Mazen Nuruddin and Bjorn Schadenberg. This conversation includes the first part of my discussion with Mazen Nuruddin. The first part of this conversation focuses on the many excellent drug development studies presented at the 2023 Diesel Congress and American Diabetes Association Scientific Sessions. We discussed some of these exceptional results, along with potential downsides in terms of tolerability and long-term antibody formation. A fun element, Mazen introduces his analogy of mass drug development as a game of monopoly, with the FGF21s and glucagon-related dual and triple agonists as the most valuable properties. I like the analogy, but note that our ability to take two lower-value modes of action, or monopoly streets, if you will, and convert them into a potent combination therapy with a lot more value makes this almost a multi-dimensional monopoly game, in the sense that people talk sometimes about playing multidimensional chess. A more serious element, Mazen points out that the simple presence of better drugs, specifically better anti-obesity drugs, will not eradicate fatty liver disease as we know it today. He reminds us that despite years of history of diabetes drugs and multiple exciting efficacious mechanisms of action, the Lancet recently published a study estimating that 1.3 billion people will be living with type 2 diabetes by 2050, thereby proof that simply coming up with better drugs does not cure the problems we had and likely will not do so with fatty liver disease either. Our entire key opinion leader and advocate team has been struck forcibly by how many studies provided significant advances in knowledge and how some of these advances might change our underlying appreciation of drugs, diagnostics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and how we think about fatty liver disease overall. It's quite a lot to digest and very exciting to consider. So sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Here's the topic. When I went to Nashtag in 2019 and 2020, people talked about how it was a really unique meeting. I said that what it reminded me of was some of the early meetings of something called SITSI, the Society for Immunotherapy and Cancer. And before the PD-1s hit big, that was a very collegial scientific meeting of people working together to figure out how to solve an exciting and majorly important problem that didn't have an obvious solution, which was immunotherapy and cancer. And then once a lot of drugs actually came late into pipeline, uh, the meeting got huge, Big Pharma invested heavily, and a lot of it became about competitive evaluations between drugs that were using different data with major commercial implications. And over time, that stuff starts out, better drugs tend to win, worse drugs tend to lose. Well, actually, earlier drugs to market have a huge advantage, but within that, agents that present a real benefit tend to win over time. What happened two weeks ago, I guess now, between the major drug presentations at EASL and major drug presentations at ADA, same weekend, completely different drugs, we had a range of issues start to show up, ranging from real excitement around Maestro and Nash, oh my gosh, we might finally get a drug here, to trying to figure out how to compare what was going on with glucagon agonists and oral glips in San Diego to what was being reported with dual agonists and some triple agonist posters in um, Vienna to trying to sort out how to compare a late breaker for one FGF21 with what had been exciting early data for another FGF21 uh, to a comment from somebody I read that said that one of the things they learned was that from this meeting was that FGF19s really have a future. So there's just a bunch of confusion going around right now. So what I'd like to talk about with you a little bit is since you talk to as many people as anybody, some of the areas where you think all this energy is producing interesting and important questions that have to get sorted out. Why don't we start with the glucagon agonist versus the world? Mazen Nuruddin. Sure. Let me just tell you, like, I guess it's a tsunami happened in the last two weeks, right? Yeah. Speaking of surfing the tsunami, there have been more than one New England Journal paper related to metabolic disease, in particular obesity, as well as 
Nash. And interestingly, what added to the confusion is there were luckily multiple good presentations in the American Diabetes Association that talked about oral drugs or oral GLP-1s and their effect on weight loss. And many of us do not attend that meeting or we were somewhere else. We were at Easel while the other meeting was starting or something like that overlap. So the big news were mostly around FGF-21s and GLP-1s. Let me give you some analogy on the Nash landscape. I recently gave a presentation and I was asked to comment on drug development in a quick snapshot. The analogy that I used in a quick snapshot was the game Monopoly. You know the game, right? But although I don't like Monopoly, I put multiple mechanisms of actions on different streets and assigned the two most expensive streets to GLP-1 and FGF-21s. They are expensive to buy, develop. Once you I guess put houses or something in them you can get a lot back on your money and I put different other mechanisms on different streets like the PPRs are still very effective genetic therapies and many others the, the, the novel lipogenesis and yada yada so what we have seen in, and to go back to your question about the GLP-1s now we are seeing orals that actually lead to some weight loss that is significant it's like more than bariatric surgery so there's another conversation going on? Do we need bariatric surgery anymore or weight loss procedures? And I will leave that up to the endoscopist and bariatric surgeons. But what we have seen, I guess, um, I'm going to start butchering names because we have had so many of them. So the triple by Lily Ritatrutide, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, was published in the New England Journal and there was 25% weight reduction. This is a huge, really, really big. To be more specific, I'm still like wanting to see the final or separate analysis of their fat fraction on the MRIs. But here and there, I'm being told it's up to 90% of people almost normalize their fat. Again, don't quote me yet. I, I still have to see the final presentation. At the same time, oral SEMA also achieved good weight loss. In addition, Pfizer had the opposite in use. Pfizer were developing GLP-1s and one of their GLP-1s was actually stopped by Pfizer due to hepatotoxicity or concerns about liver safety. So the story is not final with the oral GLP-1s or dual or triple that has any GLP-1 to do with the compound. The big question or the elephant in the room is still, what do you do with fibrosis? And now let's shift the conversation a bit from the F2 to F3s and more importantly in, in the cirrhotics. Ritatritide was not shared in Vienna, right? Which meant that the audience that got to see it was, A, it was an obesity study and B, the audience that got to see it was a non-hepatology audience. So when I was looking at the New England Journal paper, one of my snap reactions was 10 to 17% discontinuation rate per tetratide, depending on dose. And the dose that produced the 25% weight loss in 48 weeks was 17% discontinuation rate. One of the things we know in real practice is that managing the injectable clips isn't as easy as people say that, you know, gastric issues for a significant proportion of patients are meaningful. In the aphenopegdotide presentation at ADA, now they were comparing to a low-dose SEMA, but they showed higher gastric issues there than low-dose SEMA for the dual agent. Triple agent had a 17% discontinuation rate at high dose. And one of 
the things I think we're going to wind up dealing with in real practice is, so how many patients are going to tolerate that drug anyway, right? If you get a 17 in, in, in a clinical trial where you work very, very hard at keeping people on drug, as a uh, guy seeing patients in clinic, which I know you don't do a ton anymore, but you still do, how high does a discontinuation rate in a trial have to be for you to say, gee, that might be an issue in terms of practical patient management? Yeah, I, I actually still get I see tons of patients. I, I just do it on, on boluses between my travels and conferences, and I have given GLP-1s. As you know, one of my biggest problem or everyone's problems is access. And a lot of people say, well, put that on the side. Uh, sure, we can put that on the side in a second, and we'll go to the side effects you talked about. In addition, they're talking about the WHO making GLP-1s an essential drug and all that, and I hope it will happen. So if access is resolved, as you said, the GI side effects will be a really big issue. And especially like the, the higher dose you go or the more you add to the GLP-1s like dual or, or triple. So that's out there. And between the nausea, vomiting and side effects and potentially their effect on fibrosis, the future is still wide in terms of questions. And I'll give you an example from my experience back in the days when I was a young and young faculty that is immature. The obitacolic acid data in NASH came out. I was writing an NIH grant and I sat there and my wonderful boss at that same time, she was a basic scientist and she said, Ian, my grant was on therapeutics and she started questioning if it will be approved and that's the right thing to do, that they criticize your grant. And I was really worried about that grant getting funded or not. Fast forward, here we are in 2023. Unfortunately, obitacolic acid is no go anymore. If I look back at it when I was started panicking on, on the drug, the efficacy was good at that time, but still not enough. And same thing for Nash drugs now. We, we really don't see, let's give you an example. The best we have right now, we don't have more than 50% inf- improvement in histology. So all these drugs, they still have long, long way to go. Now, let me comment on the GLP-1s and the side effects and all this. So the people say, well, that's, that will seal the deal. We'll treat obesity. We'll NASH might go away. And look at the type 2 diabetes field. There have been multiple, mul- multiple drugs that have been developed over the, the years. And yet, there's more development for GLP-1 and other drugs. And diabetes is not going away, unfortunately. It's, it's on the rise so as obesity is on the rise. Hopefully, we'll mitigate that in the future. But... I want to point out also to a publication that came out in The Lancet within the last few weeks, in addition to the New England Journal paper. And that was a meta-analysis as well as predictive model of the prevalence of type 2 diabetes in 2050. Again, 2050, 2050. And it's estimated that 1.3 billion people will have type 2 diabetes. So I go back to the initial discussions that we had as hepatologists. We do believe that the field will be not finished by one drug. The field will be very interesting in the next decade or two. You will have one drug added to another, managing the side profile effects, managing which combination is best, managing which efficacy will will do best. And going back to the monopoly game that I told you, I showed that slide and I said, it's up to you which street you want to buy, which one you want to put a hotel on, but it will be a wide open field that people can benefit from multiple drugs 
it depends on their portfolio. And finally, I put in a subsequent slide, I highlighted the go to jail guy. And I said, the go to jail in our field will be liver biopsy. It will set you back, I'll put you back in jail here and there. You have to get out of it. And we have come out of it. <laughs> and we have had positive phase three study as discussed, uh, but it will be a, m- a major hurdle, especially with the internet observer av- variabilities and other issues that we have discussed in previous episodes. So let me go, go to Monopoly for a second, because I love your metaphor. You and I had not talked about this before we got on this interview, so I love it. But so here's the interesting thing, right? In Monopoly, for example, a drug class might be Boardwalk and Park Place, and another one might be Mediterranean Baltic, which I guess is the cheap end. But what you can't do is put Baltic on New York Avenue, which is kind of a middle level, and declare that that's North Carolina, which is next best to Boardwalk and Park Place. Whereas here, you actually can put together a combination therapy that's, you know, one part the THR beta and one part FXR or, or whatever else. And maybe that's the combination where a single drug gets you over your 50% mark. So so if you will, they talk about playing multidimensional speed chess. This is multidimensional monopoly. You, you can build hotels and then you can also build franchises of multiple different uh, streets. So obviously, you know, you're monopoly very well and you know the streets names very well. So I forgot them. Not to mention that I grew up in, in, in a different country. So we had the streets names were different Though I know like the name of the streets very well. I go to, uh, I go to Atlantic City from time to time. I live an hour from there. So I know all those street <laughs> names really well. And for those who don't know, that's where Monopoly is based on. Cool. So so again, like it will be like a lot of pharma owing a lot of assets here and there. And I bet you in the future, we're seeing it already. A lot of bigger pharma, they are owning big products now, like GLP-1 in addition to the FGF-21s. Tyrant hormone beta receptor is, is very attractive as well. We still have to see it combined with other agents and especially it will make hopefully the first FDA approval and it will be up to the I just don't want it to see it people also from commercial and assets kind of concept the monopoly it's also I'm a, as a physician I will have multiple drugs in my hand and I will combine both of them and we go back to that when one of episodes like a year or two ago what is the patient is EF2 or F3 and eventually cirrhotic which one I will combine how does the patient look like does he have GERD does he have IBS does he have constipation, which are not uncommon side effects. And eventually, I think there will be multiple sensitivity analysis related to BMI, related to gender, related to many other things. So it's just like we have to know the landscape and this, as you said, the goal back to the monopoly where which streets you want to combine and which things that work best. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, we'll be back with Stephen Harrison to discuss some of the major drug development stories of these two sessions. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.